0: Today, we are going to talk about promises. So there are two definitions of the word promise. One is a noun, and it's defined as this. A declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that particular thing will happen. And as as young kids, we understand and figure out what promises mean, the noun form, real quick. You know, when you, you want to go do something with your kid and, or you need to take them to the hospital for the S word, the shot, and you promise them, if you go through, you brave up, and you get the shot, we're going to get you a brand new toy. Or as you get older, as a teenager, and you have you know, the holiday season's coming up, and you have to make sure your room is clean, even though teenagers don't understand why the room has to be clean for the rest of the house to work, but you promise your mom and dad that you will make sure that room is clean before grandma walks through the front door. So we understand the concept of declaring a promise. Now, there's the second definition, which is a verb, and it says this. Assure someone that one will definitely Do, give, or arrange something, undertake, or declare that something will happen. In other words, you're not just saying, I'm going to do it. You're going to say you're going to do it, and then you're going to follow through and do it. Uh, for example, my, my wife, Jack and I have a nine-year-old son named Liam, and he's a blast. We have a lot of fun with him, and what happens with Liam is Liam likes to like, try to figure out how, what he can do if he wants to do something extra, like play a video game, or he wants to get something from a specifically like card store. He's lo- he loves sports cards. He's got, I think our house is a sports card store at this point, um, but he just likes to, you know, really, Dad, I really want this thing. I really want to play some video games, you know, and I usually listen, hear him out, I go, okay, we don't have time right now, but I promise that at some point you can play that video game. Well, then inevitably the day goes on and I forget. And he, I hear the words, but dad, you promised. You're still not playing a video game. Anyways, but at the same time, we understand the concept of declaring the promise and following through. And the thing is the follow through side of can be a mixed bag. For a lot of us, more times than not, we have a promise given to us and there's no action behind it. We give a promise and we attempt to maybe have the action, but we don't step through. See, the end of the year is fastly approaching us. We are a week away or so from Halloween, we're less than 70 days from Thanksgiving and only 63 more shopping days to Christmas. But at the end of the year, we do these things called New Year's resolutions, or we can just call them New Year's promises, right? I promise, I I resolve that I'm going to lose weight this coming year. I resolve, I promise I'm going to maybe slow down on the coffee intake or the pop intake. I promise, I I resolve that I'm going to focus on a friendship or relationship or my walk with Jesus. And all those promises, all those declarations are good, and I more often than not, they're well-intended to do. But for one reason or another, we don't achieve those things. We don't follow through with those promises. And promises can be even more tricky when it's not a promise kept. When a spouse is asking you to work on something that concerns them about you, and you promise them, but you don't follow through. When a boss says, I promise you that this coming year, you're going to have a great job opportunity, an opportunity to, to move up in your career, and that opportunity never happens. Or politicians who say, if you vote for me, all your problems go away, and then you click the box or check the box, and you have more problems. All this, I say this for this reason. Broken promises. They hurt. They disappoint. And sadly, as human beings, I really think as, as humans, I think we really, when we say we promise, we say we're going to do something, we say we want to accomplish something, I really feel like we, our heart's in the right spot. We intend to do those things, but sometimes, and sometimes more often than not, we fail to follow through. But the question is, what about God? Does God promise things and does God follow through on those promises? And that's what we're going to talk about with, for the remainder of our time together today. So the Old Testament is full of all kinds of promises from God. Uh, he doesn't call them specifically promises. He calls them covenants. One of the earliest covenants comes in Genesis chapter 9. After God hits the reset button and floods the earth, he tells us this. Genesis nine eleven I will establish my covenant, my promise with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall, be a, shall there be a flood that destroys the earth. Now, God promises Noah and promises humanity that he's never going to flood the whole earth again. Have there been floods throughout history? Absolutely. But no world enters, so we can check that mark. Promise made, promise kept. You fast forward to Genesis 12. There's a guy named Abraham. He tells Abraham this, Abraham 12, 12, 1. Now, the Lord says to Abram, get out of your, of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, God tells Abraham, first and foremost, one of the most, you know, mind-blowing things at the time, because he asked him to leave his family tribe, which in the ancient culture was unheard of. And he backs up that ask with these promises. He says, I'll make you a great nation. And he sure did. He he established the nation of Israel through, through Abraham. He says, I'll give you a land, a special land, a promised land. He follows through with that. And through Abraham, a new generation, a new nation will be blessed. And the nation of Israel was blessed and is still blessed to this day. And then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God sends out these promises. He tells Moses, listen, if you obey me, good things are going to happen. He tells King David, if you follow my lead, I'm going to make you a great king. And sure enough, that happens. And throughout the Old Testament, he's constantly given these promises. And each promise he gives, he fulfills. But the problem with the Old Testament and the people of the Old Testament is they are, they're in this vicious cycle. What happens to the, the nation of Israel is so often they start to follow Jesus and they're, they're pointing his direction, they're following his lead, God at the time, and they said, okay, we're, you're our God, we're, we're all in. And then for whatever reason, they start to turn the other way. What God does is he sends a prophet or sends a mediator in and says, listen, if you don't turn the boat around, if you don't go back the other direction, bad things are going to happen to you. Like slavery. Like removing you from your land. Like heartache and pain and death. And inevitably the Israelites don't turn themselves around and bad things happen. And then God hears their hurt, hears their pain, and brings them a path of redemption. And it's just this cycle happens all through the Old Testament, constantly. And we get to a prophet named Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And the reason why he's known as the weeping prophet is because he's one of those bad news prophets. Like, his job was to say, hey, guys, you better stop. Something bad's gonna happen. And, of course, all of us take people telling us criticisms really well. And so the nation of Israel, just like all of us, hears Jeremiah Jeremiah's like, hey, turn them turn around. And what does he get in return? Well, he gets beaten, arrested, mocked, threatened, all those wonderful things. And sure enough, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in and they just destroy Jerusalem, the Promised Land, and take the Israelites captive. But in the midst of that heartbreak, given a new promise jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33 this is the covenant the promise i will make with the people of israel after that time declares the lord i will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts i will be their god and they will be my people No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. In the middle of this great pain, this great upheaval, God promises Jeremiah and his people this amazing covenant, this amazing promise. The thing is, we are not too much different than the nation of Israel. In our lives, we, I think our hearts, our attention is to follow Jesus and to follow his lead and embrace what he's about. And so often we fall short time and time again. And we are in need of a Savior. But I want you to really look at the three main promises of what Jeremiah 31 gives us. The first promise is that God says that there's, there's going to be a direct line between us and him. There'll no longer need it to be a mediator or prophets. That God will have a communication with us. That's the first promise through Jeremiah 31. The second promise is the sin thing. Now in, in, in the Old Testament time, if you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you had to sacrifice small animals constantly. And what Jeremiah is being promised, and what we were promised in that, in that covenant, is that there'll be a perfect sacrifice. There'll no longer be that barrier because of that perfect sacrifice, and the very last promise, and that this is going to be for a whole new generation, a new way of living. Everyone's going to be blessed, from the least of these to the most important, to people who understand religion, who have zero understanding of it. It's going to be for everyone. And that is the promise given to Jeremiah, and the Israelites. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, they hear it. This promise is going to happen. This promise is going to be fulfilled. He's fulfilled the promises in the past. It's coming. Enter Jesus. Jesus, who all of Christianity is based around, came to this earth, grew up as a carpenter's son, about 30 years into his life, starts a ministry, and he, he makes some big waves. He claims to be God, and that's a problem for the religious elite and the leaders of the world because what he's saying doesn't match up with what they, were, what they think God was all about. Because what Jesus would do, Jesus would lift up people who are normally looked down upon. Jesus would include people that were normally excluded. Jesus would value people who were usually overlooked or bypassed altogether. And that's how the world worked back then. The leaders were afraid because their power was at stake. They were used to having the last say. They were used to doing what they wanted to do. They were used to being the ones who had the authority and this guy comes around and says, nah, that's not how God works. And the surprising thing to the disciples of Jesus was that they didn't realize that it was going to cost Jesus his life. But Jesus wasn't surprised. He understood this is the end game. This is what I need to do. This is why I'm here. And so right before he's arrested, Jesus understood he had one big opportunity, one last opportunity to to change everything, to flip everything upside down. And he needed this most important conversation with his 12, his closest followers. And of course, like all great things, it surrounds food. It surrounds a meal. And here's what happens. Luke 22, verse 19. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. Gave it to him and said this, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood, which is poured out for you. See what Jesus does here? He takes the noun, promise given to us in Jeremiah 31 and he flips it to a verb. He's about to take the declaration that was given far before Jesus even walked this earth and put it into an action step and then gives us an action step to do about taking the bread and taking the juice and eating it. But before we get into that part of our conversation today, I want us to look back at Jeremiah's 31s and his promise and the promises kept because Jesus was the link to the person having a personal relationship with God. There was no more need of those prophets anymore, just like he promised. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. No more animals needed. No more having to sacrifice multiple times a year just to get a forgiveness. Jesus was that perfect forgiveness. And through Jesus is a whole new way of living. Because Jesus is for everyone. His message is for everyone. And what he stands for is what, is, what God stands for for everyone. And shortly after this amazing confirmation that, that God is a God of promises, Jesus is arrested. He's nailed to a Roman cross. He's killed. The amazing thing to me about the, the Easter story is Jesus could have said, no, I'm good. He didn't, need the, he didn't want to be crucified. He didn't want to die. But he chose to. He chose to because he understood if he died without doing anything wrong, he died and forgave those who have persecuted and hurted him. He understood that he is the best representation of what God and who God is. A God of love, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. So Jesus dies this horrible death. On that Sunday morning, two women go to the gravesite to, to prepare his body. And then this happens. Matthew 28, verse 2. There was a violent earthquake. For the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes was white as snow. The guards were so afraid of of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, He has risen, just as he started. and see the place where He lay. Imagine being those women, heartbroken, devastated, from losing the person they have followed for years, and now they're walking to this tomb, and all has changed in a heartbeat and a flash. From that day on, and, and 2,000 years later, we still celebrate and, and focus that the foundation of who we are as Christians is the resurrection of Jesus and the fulfillment of a promise. And that's the beginning of the new covenant that lasts to this day. We are a part of a long line of people who have allowed the, the resurrection of our Savior and the promise of this new covenant to be the foundation of who we are. And the really cool thing about what we get to do on a Sunday morning, we get to join in with millions of other people around this earth in this moment. Because throughout this planet right now, people are going to be doing something we're about to do. They're going to be involved in this thing that's called communion, or the Eucharist, or the Last Supper, they could be a part of this amazing moment where we remember the sacrifice of the living God and we celebrate that he has risen and he's fulfilled all the Old Testament prophets and all the Old Testament promises and gives us a new promise to this day. How awesome is that? Marcus is going to come up and play a little music here. Not yet, Dave, just Marcus. Uh, we'll get to you here in a second. Um, before we get to communion i have a little, some, some some instructions for you okay they're going to go back and they're going to get to the, the, the stuff here in a second i want you to take communion a little different today trays are going to be passed and you can grab your your cups got the juice has got the bread in it today i don't want you just to take it and sit it down and move before you take communion i want you to pause and I want you to think about a couple things, pray about a couple things, meditate on a couple things. The first is seek forgiveness. Even those of us in this room who've done this Christianity thing for a long time, we understand that we are still far from what God wants us to be. And sometimes you just gotta, you know, God, thank you. Just forgive me for the things that I fall short on. Take a moment and ask God for that forgiveness. Secondly, I want you to take a second one before you take communion and thank him for the blessings he has in your life. Thank him for sending his son to die on the cross. Thank him for for the promises fulfilled. And after that, take your communion and as Marcus kind of plays, just just focus and think about and pray about just how amazing God is to you and how, how amazing this good news is for him. And for your life and the life of everyone you, that you, you get, come across with every day. Communion is a celebration. Communion is a time for us to say, yes, God, thank you. And so we're going to pray here in a second and after our communion, I got a couple more things to say to you. Uh, but I really want you to celebrate this time together. Let's pray. God, the God of promises, you sent your son down here. He didn't need to take the, the, the nails. He didn't need to take the beating and the mocking. He chose to come here because he loves us so much. He loves us so much and wants to, us to have that relationship that he's dying to have with us. That forgiveness of sins that stops that barrier between us and him. And God, as we celebrate, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for our blessings. We thank you for your son. God, we ask you to bless this time of communion pray this in your name. reason to celebrate. We have a God of promises both given and, and met. Now what do we do with this? What do we do in 2022 with this information? What do we do with the promise that Jesus gives us in our lives? And Jesus pretty much tells us we we have a choice in the matter. We can treat this faith thing as a noun or a verb. In fact, here's what he says at the end of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, it's like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because its foundation, the foundation of the resurrection of the promise is on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is a foolish man who puts his house on the sand. The rains came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. What Jesus is telling us, he's saying, listen, this this world is going to be full of storms. But if your life foundation is the resurrection and the promise that he gives us, you are in store to stand strong through the storms. But like I said, we have a choice in the matter. We can treat this Christianity thing, this faith thing as a noun, as a declaration. I am a Christian. I go to church on Sundays. I listen to music. Maybe I'll sing along a little bit. I'll take communion. I'll listen to whoever's on stage. I'll go home, check. We can treat our, found, our faith foundation in that way and, and feel so shallow and, and missing. Or we can treat our faith foundation as a verb knowing that the, the, our, the resurrection of Jesus, the promise he's given us, will always stand firm no matter what this world throws at us, and that because of that, we want to share that news with everyone possible. We want to serve either here at the church or, or, and or out in the community. You want to make sure your co-workers understand the amazing gift of Jesus and that foundation that never fails. Does this mean as a follower of Jesus that you're going to never go through tough times or storms. Absolutely not. We live in a human world that has all kinds of things thrown at us. But it does mean that when we face those storms, we're going to stand firm. That's why people who are all in with this faith thing can go through the hardest, darkest valleys and still praise and bless the name of Jesus. That's why when people are all in this faith thing, they they can praise the name of Jesus no matter what trial goes their way or, or, or what circumstances they face. They can handle it. The band's gonna come up and play one more song. But we have a choice to make. We have to choose between are we live this faith as a noun or a verb? I want to leave you with one last piece of scripture this morning. Lamentations chapter three, verse twenty-two says this because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We serve a God of promises, both spoken and kept. We serve a God that is about the verb, about the action. Great is his faithfulness. Great is those promises. Are you going to live your faith as a noun or a verb? Let's pray. God, great is your faithfulness. You are a God that has promised us so many things, and time and time again, you have fulfilled those promises. And as we go through life, and God, we want to live and share this good news with everyone we could possibly hear because you are so faithful to us. You, you are not consumed by the grief and pain and heartache of this world, but you said your son who was the perfect sacrifice, so there's no longer a barrier anymore. And God, I ask you as you fulfill those promises in our lives that we go out and we share this news with everyone. And we want to put action behind what we do because you are faithful and great is your faithfulness. Amen.